Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald. Many of you know Neil Gaiman as the author of American Gods, which is now a series on Stars Network. Some of you might remember him as the creator of the epic graphic series Sandman. He's also quite the mythologist, and in addition to his numerous sci-fi and fantasy books, he recently wrote a book diving into the rich world of the Norse myths. Here's a taste of the Norse creation myth as told by Gaiman. Quote, Between Muspel and Niflheim was a void, an empty place of nothingness without form. The rivers of the mist world flowed into the void, which was called Genunga Gap, the yawning gap. In the melting waters life appeared, the likeness of a person bigger than the world's, huger than any giant there will be or has ever been. This was neither male nor was it female, but it was both at the same time. This creature was the ancestor of all the giants, and it called itself Ymir. Gaiman goes on to describe the act of creation of the universe, the dismemberment of the frost giant Ymir. Odin and Vili and Ve killed the frost giant Ymir. It had to be done. There was no other way to make the worlds. This was the beginning of all things, the death that made all life possible. They made the soil from Ymir's flesh. Ymir's bones they piled up into mountains and cliffs. Our rocks and pebbles, the sand and gravel you see, these were Ymir's teeth. The seas that girdle the worlds, these were Ymir's blood and sweat. Look up into the sky, you are looking at the inside of Ymir's skull. And the clouds you see by day, these were once Ymir's brains. And who knows what thoughts they are thinking, even now. Today on the Emerald, dismembered frost giants and the core power paradox, self-care meets self-obliteration in an identity-driven world. So, no, we're not interviewing Neil Gaiman today. Who knows? That may come in time. Instead, we're going to talk about dismemberment. And if that seems like a poor substitute, it's worth remembering that many of the great myths and stories of the world, and particularly of the world's creation, involve dismemberment, the tearing apart of one great body. In the Vedas, the ancient scriptures of India, the giant being known as Purusha is dismembered into five parts that become the five directions and the five elements, the basic building blocks of reality. In Egyptian myths, it is the dismemberment of Osiris. 
The Christian tradition of alchemy shows the cosmos as one great hermaphroditic body that produces of itself by itself, which is also reflected in the cosmologies of the virgin birth. These visions evoke a basic truth, that this universe is one great body, split into many parts. What does this mean? It means that at its heart, all is one. There's one energy that is constant, unchanging in quantity or essential quality. No energy is gained or lost, says modern physics, and at the most fundamental levels of creation, energy pretty much looks all the same. This one energy body of the cosmos is also, of course, many. It comes in myriad forms. It is the many galaxies, the great nebula and star clusters that are themselves called bodies. It is the many planets and oceans and beings that inhabit those oceans, and the beings that, like us humans, carry a piece of the ocean with us wherever we go. Here's how they described this oneness and its split into diversity in ancient Mesoamerica. Goddess Tlatutli was walking alone upon the face of the primordial waters. A great and wonderful maiden, with eyes and jaws at every joint that could see and bite like animals. She was spied by the two primary gods, Quetzalcoatl, the plumed serpent, and Tezcatlipoca, the smoking mirror, whereupon, deciding that they should create the world of her, they transformed themselves into mighty serpents and came at her from either side. One seized her from the right hand to the left foot, the other from the left hand to the right foot, and together they ripped her asunder. From the parts they fashioned not only the earth and heavens, but also the gods. And then to comfort the goddess for what had happened to her, all the gods came down, and paying her obeisance, commanded that there should come from her all the fruits that men require for their life. And so, from her hair they made trees, flowers, and grass. From her eyes, springs, fountains, and little caves. From her mouth, rivers, and the great caves from her nose, valleys, and from her shoulders, mountains. In this goddess, we have the vision of a supreme oneness that contains within her all the potentiality of diversity in the form of eyes and teeth at every joint. Every part of this oneness is aware, alive. This vision is directly reminiscent of the Tibetan goddess Tara, who also has eyes all over her body. The whole being is awake. Yes, in many parts, but when in a state of meditative oneness, each part is the whole aware of itself. This mythic sense is that there exists a primal oneness to the universe that underlies everything, a oneness that split into a diversity that resulted in all things, from the great star systems, to the forests and oceans, to the individual beings. This vision of singularity expressing into diversity is just as at home in the vision of the Big Bang as it is in the story of the dismembered goddess. This diversity came, science tells us, from a singularity. The one became many. Human beings, living in the dismembered world, or the world of duality as it is sometimes called, often feel fractured or disconnected from this primal body of oneness. We go about our lives sometimes anxious, sometimes disconnected, not necessarily feeling one or whole. The goal of yoga practice or meditation practice and much of human ritual of course, is to reconnect us, to remember, as it were, that which has been torn apart. The key point within most streams of practice is that in order to achieve this unification, 
Something in us has to be dismantled or disassembled. Something has to be torn apart within us so that we can experience the oneness. The dismantling of the small self, its impulses, agitations, and anxieties that keep it distracted and separate, in service of finding oneness with the infinite. This is an intricate way of saying that we can't transform until we let go. The new self we seek comes only with the destruction of the old. Old patterns, relationships, toxic friends, environments sometimes need to be let go of before we can start fresh. Or as the story of Amir calls it, the death that made all life possible. What's worth noting is that for most cultures, most societies, this isn't a symbolic journey, but rather one that is experienced quite literally. The Arctic explorer Nud Rasmussen described the ordeals of Arctic shamanic initiates in great detail. Here's what one young initiate had to say. They stood me up like a block of wood and shot at me with their bows until I lost consciousness. They cut up my flesh, separated my bones, counted them, and ate my flesh raw. When they counted the bones, they found one too many. Had there been too few, I could not have become a shaman. And while they were performing this rite, I ate and drank nothing for the whole summer. But at the end, the shaman spirits drank the blood of a reindeer and gave me some to drink too. The same thing happens to every Tungus shaman. Only after his shaman ancestors have cut up his body in this way and separated his bones can he begin to practice. Joseph Campbell recounts the corresponding event in the lives of the medicine men of the Aranda in Australia. When a man of this Australian tribe feels that he has the power to become a shaman, he leaves the camp alone and proceeds to the mouth of a certain cave, where, with considerable trepidation, not venturing to go inside, he lies down to sleep. At the break of day, a spirit comes to the mouth of the cave, and finding the man asleep, throws at him an invisible lance, which pierces his neck from behind, passes through his tongue, and emerges from his mouth. A second lance, then thrown by the spirit, pierces his head from ear to ear, and the victim, falling dead, is immediately carried into the depths of the cave, within which the spirits live in perpetual sunshine, among streams of running water. The cave in question is supposed to extend far under the plain, terminating at a spot beneath what is called the Edith Range, ten miles away. The spirits there remove all of the man's internal organs and provide him with a completely new set, made of quartz crystals, after which he presently returns to life. What's important here is that these are not symbolic experiences, these are deeply felt experiences. This dismemberment is not something that is symbolic for the initiate. It is actual lived experience. This piercing of lances is enacted in rituals of self-mortification, which can still be seen in India today, in which devotees of Shiva 
or of many local or regional goddesses, pierce their tongues, their faces, their backs, and endure protracted periods of pain in order to dismantle the self and experience union with the ultimate. The same piercing is internalized in the yogic process. Through meditative concentration, the yogi moves the lance of the focused energy upwards, piercing the palate and then finally the space between the temples, where the individual self dies, until they find the depths of the cave where the spirits live in perpetual sunshine. The perpetual sunshine, of course, being the perpetual light of conscious samadhi, and the streams of running water, the flow of the amrita, the deathless nectar of the experience of oneness of spirit and cosmos. The bestowing of a new set of organs upon the seeker, made of quartz crystals, is analogous to the Tibetan Buddhist Vajra body or diamond body. Through the meditative practice, one's consciousness becomes clear and impervious to harm as a diamond. The myths and stories enact, invoked, and sometimes teach this very visceral experiential journey of the practitioner. The process of practice, just as it is on the cosmic universal level, is that we are torn apart and remade over and over again in our journey towards oneness. Certain practices, like the Tibetan Chu ritual, enact this vision of the body as cosmos and enact the ritual tearing apart of the body directly. In the Chu ritual, after visualizing their body as the one great universal body, the practitioner undergoes an elaborate meditative dismemberment. From the book Chu, The Sacred Teachings on Severance, by Jamgun Kongtrul and translated by my old Tibetan teacher, Sarah Harding. My body's skin becomes the mighty great ground, my head the supreme mountain, my four limbs the four continents, my two eyes the sun and the moon. This universal body is then offered for the spirits of nature to tear apart and consume. I offer you the six forms of my outer flesh. I offer you the nine inner organs. I offer you the five essential organs. To all of you here, I offer this body. You who are impatient, eat it raw. You who are not hurried, eat it cooked. Those who come early, snatch the loot. Latecomers gulp down the remains. Like lions relishing flesh, take the first offering and leave nothing. The body is then ritualistically remade into the body of pure luminosity, the body of the deity, the body of oneness. When Ian Curtis of Joy Division sang, Love Will Tear Us Apart Again, thankfully he was only delivering half the story. Love will tear us apart and remake us again and again, just as it has been doing with universes over and over as we move ever closer to an experience of union or home.
A recent New York Times article came out about core power yoga and the business of modern yoga. The article opened with a daunting tagline, Capitalism won't rest until everyone in America has taken a yoga teacher training, and then described the process through which students are systematically convinced to attend core power teacher trainings. The article spoke mostly about core power, but it really could have been talking about any of the thousands of yoga studios across the country who are in the business of churning out as many prospective yoga teachers as they can. When speaking of the appeal of core power yoga, former core power marketing executive Tess Roaring had the following to say, you can get flat abs and inner peace in an hour. Or in other words, you can attain the feeling of oneness without the inconvenience of some type of ego disassembly, and in fact, can bolster your ego at the same time. Let's leave aside the first part of her statement with the understanding that flat abs were never a goal of yoga practice in either ancient or recent memory. And let's focus on the second part of the statement, the whole inner peace in an hour bit, what I'm going to call for the purposes of this episode, the core power paradox. It's a paradox because, first of all, you obviously can't get inner peace in an hour. Second of all, to say you can runs diametrically opposed to all the teachings of actual yoga. And third of all, it's a paradox in the sense that inner peace may in fact come from the exact opposite set of conditions than is often assumed with our modern-day emphasis on self-care. Inner peace, if the ancients are to be believed, may in fact come from the dismantling of the self through repetitive instances in which we have to let go of ego constructs, ambitions, hopes, fears, anxieties, and false presumptions about who we really are, over and over and over again. In a late capitalist world, the notion of obtaining a brand new self without the bother and mess and distastefulness of some form of disassembly or ego destruction is very popular. Hence modern yoga's association with self-care, in which an ancient practice that once very clearly taught ego destruction is now lumped together with massage, spa vacations, and a host of sleekly designed accessories. In this transform-yourself-in-style vision of modern yoga, transformation is seen not so much as a dismantling, but a reinforcement of our specialness, of our entitlement to a fabulous life, and of course, of our own individual process, as probably the most interesting thing the universe has ever seen. To bolster this process, changes in external identity are sold as genuine transformation. There's been an epidemic of what has been termed spiritual materialism. Buy the right beads, get the right yoga accessories, go on the right retreats with the right teachers, and there's your transformation, your new self right there. Sometimes new selves are sought through external physical modification, cosmetic surgery and such. Sometimes a new self is sought through an external moniker, like a name change. Sometimes it's a spa vacation. In the yoga world, this view of external identity shift as genuine transformation presents a very clear paradox, since it is at odds with the vision of yoga itself, in which ultimately a being finds the real change through letting go of all those ultimately vapid external supports in favor of changing their own consciousness directly. Consider for a moment the foundational vows of ancient yogis in Ladakh, who had to state their willingness to die alone in a cave without anyone so much as remembering their name before they were even taught one yogic practice. 
try to grasp how far the journey is from that to the billion-dollar yoga pants industry, and you have yourself the makings of a paradox. The yoga world is not unaware of this paradox. How many times have we heard the local yoga teacher say something like, we know transformation isn't easy, and surrender is necessary to a group of eagerly nodding students. Yet when the need for surrender and ego dismantling is reinforced as part of the set of considerations that should drive a person towards a pricey teacher training, you've reached the very definition of commodification, in which the end goal of all of it is monetization and external validation. And ultimately, this is a capitalist vision of self, very different from the ancient yogic vision. The transformation of externals in support of an external vision of what it means to be me. I don't like this old identity, I'll get a new one. I'm really uncomfortable, so I'll rearrange my furniture in my house instead of addressing the root cause of my discomfort. Deck chairs on the Titanic, as the saying goes. It's pretty comfortable for us to talk about this in relation to the capitalist excesses of the modern yoga world. It's a little less comfortable to turn the lens to modern-day identity politics. Now, I understand the necessity of marginalized groups to claim identity and seek rights based on that identity. I think this struggle for rights is necessary. I worked in human rights for many years. So, yes, I think it's necessary, especially in societies where oppression dictates that if marginalized groups don't establish some form of identity, they are eradicated. So I'm not in any way trying to say that identity is a bad word. At the same time, it's simply interesting when identity meets yogic philosophy because there's no denying the fact that eventually an emphasis on identity is going to butt up against yogic teachings in a pretty profound way. Because at the heart of it, as far as yoga is concerned, it's about shedding stories about ourselves instead of telling more of them. In the cosmology of the goddess Kali, for example, synonymous with time and transformation itself, no one really gets a hall pass, no matter how right we are. She'll trample all identities equally whether they come from the left or the right, the marginalized or the privileged, the rich or the poor, whether they are the ego constructs of white supremacists or the ego constructs of feminists. Traditionally, she's not a vision of personal empowerment that is there to prop up our feelings about ourselves. She's a vision of a universe that will tear us apart over and over until we get the message to specifically stop holding on. And the Aranda Initiate or the Arctic Acolyte experiencing their own dismemberment so that they can acquire a vision and become a conduit that benefits the whole tribe is probably not concerned that their own journey be seen as important. Nor would they even necessarily have the notion that a ritual that has been going on for tens of thousands of years is really about them at all personally as much as it is about continuity of vision preserving an energetic state rather than remaking it, surrendering to the greatness of nature rather than extolling their own place in it. This topic of yoga and identity is something I'll explore in a lot more detail on this podcast with people who have a lot more personal stake in the issue than I do. (laughs) ¶¶
So ultimately, when it comes to the yoga world and modern practice, what am I suggesting? Well, I'm not suggesting that people do season-long fasts or consume enough entheogens that they experience their own ritual dismemberment, though there are certain members of the ruling elite that I would, in fact, prescribe that treatment for, like all of the current executive branch, for example, most members of Congress, possibly Deepak Chopra. But that's a tangent. It's impossible to recreate the journey of the Aranda initiate or the Yakut acolyte through hardship and dismemberment. And I certainly wouldn't point anyone towards any of the numerous shamanic trainings out there which promise that you too can become a shaman in a weekend workshop. Shamanism is not something that can necessarily be taught or learned out of cultural context. Shamanism is traditionally deeply associated with an experience of crisis with being willing to tread spaces that no one else wants to tread, committing to being something of an outcast who's met with suspicion and even dread. If anyone holds on to a romantic vision of the shamanic experience, it's something they may want to rethink a little bit, because traditionally a whole lot of the shamanic experience is what we could call terrifying. Here's what ethnobotanist Wade Davis has to say about the shaman's journey. You know, we, we, we have this idea that, you know, this romantic idea that shaman, you know, so people with feathers and bells who sing a lot, you know, I mean, by definition, the shaman is a person who invokes some technique of ecstasy to soar away on the wings of trance, a trance induced by psychoactive plants or other forms of, of um, austerities, uh, to get into these distant realms where he, she can work their deeds of mystical, magical, medical in some cases, rescue. You know, the shamanic calling is unique. It's often hereditary. It's often um, someone who's been um, singled out, marked in some way by destiny or by some indication or some, you know, um, a consequence of divination. But they're charged with a very uh, hard and heavy duty, and and it's not a, a place that most people are comfortable going, and it's the duty of the shaman to go there. You know, that's their job, as I said. You know, they're the ones who enter these spaces. I mean, so I, I think that shamanism has been much misunderstood. So, as Davis is saying, to try to replicate a modern-day shamanism is problematic for a variety of reasons. Now, there are threads that we can follow from the great practice lineages of the world. One thing that I've tried to do recently is to ask myself, when it comes to yoga practice, if I couldn't post about my practice, if I couldn't use it as a way to attract likes or followers or notoriety or money, would I do it at all? This line of inquiry is what you could call a very watered-down version of the Ladakhi yogi vow to be willing to die alone in a cave. It's a very distant cousin. But it's important because, as the Dalai Lama talks about, 
motivation in practice is everything. Why are we doing it ultimately? No, really, why are we doing it? And I think of my parents who gave up everything to practice Zen Buddhism in the late 1960s. They didn't do it as a career change. They definitely didn't do it for the money. I can attest to that. (laughs) They didn't do it for some type of acclaim. They did it to actually transform themselves. So the question is, what is the practice that lives beyond its potential as a social media post or as a way to gain traction? Are we embarking on our journey of eating and praying and loving because we know that we can write a bestseller about it afterwards? Or are we doing it for the actual transformation of the journey itself? Another way of asking When we stand alone before the universe, what is ultimately important? And I feel this is a very necessary and deep line of inquiry right now. Because to attempt to pry apart the want to practice from the want to gain acclaim from it is more and more challenging, more and more difficult more and more difficult to separate out the action itself for the sake of doing the action and the action for the sake of telling everyone about it afterwards. Like, did I really gaze across that beautiful canyon in that serene moment of meditative equipose, or was it simply a staged photograph? Did I really meditate with my palms folded at my heart for five minutes, ten minutes, an hour, Or was I there just long enough to take a photo of it and post it on Instagram? Was I more concerned with the heart essence of who I am in relation to this universe or with the story that I told other people about who I am? These are questions I grapple with. I think we all grapple with in the modern era. And they're questions that are deep and worth revisiting because I find that a little bit of the voice of late-stage capitalism wants to cry out, but why can't I have both? Why can't I have the experience of transformation and the follow-up bestseller? Well, maybe in some areas of life we can, maybe we will, but in many other areas we won't. We have to be stomped on a little bit to let our expectations go, to offer up the limbs and the organs and the eyes. But if the ancients are right, this very experience of being thrown into the jewel tumbler, of being polished raw by life, of being stomped under Kali's feet, this is the very thing that puts the shimmer in the seer's eye. episode today contained quotes from and references to a couple of books. These include Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman, a great retelling of the Norse myths, Chu, the Sacred Teachings on Severance by Jomgun Kontrul and Sarah Harding. Chu is spelled C-H-O-D with an umlaut, that's the two little dots over the O. And the D is silent. Welcome to the wonderful world of Tibetan grammar and the Masks of God series by Joseph Campbell. 
These books are available in all the usual places. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the emerald podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Thank you.